0: It's Monday, September 26th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, thanks to a court filing from the largest search engine of its kind, it's official. GIFs are cringe. How did they fall so far? Plus, the Colorado River is drying up. And part of the reason has to do with politicians ignoring the science 100 years ago. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. This morning I was responding to an email for the experimental theatre company that I'm a part of, Given that we are an experimental theater company, you can imagine email etiquette is a bit more informal and creative. So when I wanted to express my hype in response to a certain Halloween proposal, I went over to Jiffy.com, typed in Halloween, and quickly located one of my favorite trusty GIFs. The one of a news anchor dancing in a black unitard with a pumpkin mask on. I did a segment on the history of that GIF a while back, I'll try to dig it up and put a link in the show notes. Now, once upon a time, I would have pulled this gif, and yes, I say gif, not gif, sorry, but once upon a time, I would have pulled this gif from the hundreds of meticulously tagged and organized gifs that I kept on my hard drive. But as gifs at once became easier to search for online and less popular in their usage, I stopped downloading and storing them and started just doing a quick search for what I wanted instead. Gifs have now become unpopular enough that I actually hesitated before including one in my email this morning. You know, it's not just that they're a little less popular than they used to be, they've become a marker of being a cringe older internet user. At least two people on this particular email thread were younger than me, one of them significantly so, so I worried about their reaction. Would I be made fun of mercilessly for replying with a gif? I decided I didn't care, dragged the dancing pumpkin head image into my email window, and hit send. A few hours later, no one has replied. But I did stumble on a piece in The Guardian about how Jiffy, the site I used to find that Halloween Jiff this morning, is arguing to the United Kingdom's Competition and Markets Authority that Meta should be allowed to buy their company for $400 million because gifs have become so cringe that literally only Meta would buy them. Or as The Guardian's Alex Hearn put it, quote, It's rare for a multi-million dollar company to explicitly state that its business is dying because it is simply too uncool to live, end quote. Now, while Jiffy's entire case does seem to hinge on how uncool Jiffs have become, and weirdly all the ways they basically shot themselves in the foot by starting the company at all, the reason they're using that angle as the reasoning for why Meta should be allowed to buy them Indeed, that Meta is the only company that could is not, as I interpreted it, because Meta is also unbearably cringe, but apparently, at least in part, because a less-respected owner could jeopardize the relationships with major content partners Jiffy has built up over the years. They also say that there are no other suitable, interested parties. Moreover, their main argument seems to be that the entire GIF sector is in such decline that a big corporation like Meta scooping up Jiffy, itself in such decline, will in no way lessen competition in the UK. Basically, the competition is over because no one wants to use GIFs anymore anyways. But how did we get here? From GIFs being the language of the internet when Jiffy was at its peak valuation in 2016, to the company submitting an official filing referencing GIFs being for boomers and cringe. Quoting The Guardian, The animated GIF is comfortably millennial. Invented in 1989, it predates not only smartphones and social media, but even the World Wide Web. It exploded in popularity alongside the rise of the web as the easiest way to add motion to a page, but it slowly lost ground to other ways of showing pictures that required less of the limited bandwidth of the time. Its revival came at the turn of the 2010s, alongside the growth of the social network Tumblr. Although GIFs were never intended to be a replacement for video, faster internet connections meant they were, again, the easiest way to share short clips. Too short to have meaning on their own, but perfect for adding context and color to posts in the form of the reaction gif. Popularized by Tumblr blogs such as What Should We Call Me, which curated a perfect selection of responses to any situation, reaction gifs quickly became synonymous with the format itself. Why reply to a post with OMG when you can post a quick clip of Donald Glover from the sitcom community walking into a burning room carrying a stack of pizzas? At the peak of its cultural impact, making, posting, and curating GIFs could easily have become a full-time job. The best creators were known for the speed with which they could clip out shareable moments from TV shows or live events as they aired, as well as their ability to massage the format to keep the frame rate high and the file size low. End quote. I'm actually now remembering the job postings for live GIFers during events like the Oscars. But now, as internet culture writer and Cool Stuff Ride Home favorite Ryan Broderick explained to the outlet, quote, GIFs feel extremely dated. They were never easy to make and didn't work particularly well on mobile. So now, they're basically the cringe reaction image your millennial boss uses in Slack, rather than what they used to be, which was a decentralized image type for communicating on blogs and message boards. It's actually kind of sad how choked out the GIF was by large corporations, copyright laws, and mobile browsers. End quote. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. First, I want to acknowledge that GIFs were hard to find. That was the first reason I kept so many GIFs organized in a personal collection on my hard drive organized by my own system so I could find exactly the one I wanted, but most people were not like me. Finding GIFs when you wanted to use them was difficult. I still remember when filtering for animated on Google image search turned into an easier to locate filter for GIF. But even before that change was made, Alex Chung and Jace Cook started Jiffy in 2013 as a way to solve the problem of GIFs being so difficult to find and share. And I will admit that Jiffy definitely made it easier. I mean, I just admitted to using Jiffy literally this morning. But there was a second reason that I had such a huge stash of GIFs on my personal computer back in the day. Especially over on Tumblr, we weren't just making reaction GIFs from widely recognized media properties, we were all making much more niche GIFs with inside jokes from fandoms or of smaller YouTubers and animated fan art. I made my own, and also saved ones I liked made by other people. None of those were the type that you would find by searching on Google, or later on Twitter, or Apple Messages' search functions. Even on Jiffy, if those ones are out there, they're hard to find. Like all else when the corporate algorithms took over, the technology became at once more accessible and more flattened. The same most popular GIFs reliably surface at the top of search results and become over and over again the main GIFs anyone uses in a sort of ever-dominating cycle. Internet culture writer Brian Feldman agrees, telling The Guardian, quote, "...whether by design or intent, Jiffy's search tools led to a noticeable monotony in Jiff culture. The same principles that apply to Google also seem to apply to Jiffy. If you're not in the top three results, you might as well not exist. Reaction gifs became flattened and less diverse." End quote. Part of the flattening was also due to copyright, a similar problem that happened on YouTube. With many of the creations being a weak argument for fair use at best, Jiffy opted to partner with media outlets to host their own original GIFs. And now, much like the trending tab of YouTube being filled with Vivo music videos and late night with Jimmy Fallon clips instead of original content by creators, 9 out of 10 of Jiffy's top GIFs last year were posted by the company that owns each media property the GIFs came from. And to try to fix the perpetual issue of GIF's file size being too big and the image quality being too poor—I remember the site-wide celebrations every time Tumblr increased their maximum file size— Other platforms like Twitter and Facebook supported GIFs only as video files, but this meant, again, those of us who had saved actual GIF files on our computers would have to convert them before sharing them on those platforms, so again, making it easier to just search and further contributing to the flattening. And maybe if this big flattening hadn't happened, GIFs might have had a longer life, or at least not be seen as so cringe as they are. Because for every general Zer I see cringing at an overdone reaction GIF, I see several more enjoying the elegantly produced GIF sets that still live on Tumblr, reproducing entire scenes from recent episodes of television in looping silence, or admiring a slight dash of movement in otherwise still art. These most creative uses of GIFs aren't cringe. Replying to a tweet with the same office GIF every single time is... But like Broderick said, even these more decentralized and creative uses are on their way out. And it's sad, really. When a company includes tweets about their product being cringe in official court filings, you know the writing is truly on the wall. So, so long, I suppose, to my once-beloved GIF, I still remain shocked that the same reckoning has yet to come for emojis, but I'm sure they too will have their day eventually. Oh, and as of recording, there has still been no response to my dancing pumpkin head gif. I think my cringe gif use must have killed the email thread. Especially if you live in the western United States, you are well aware that the Colorado River is drying up, and has been for some time. Quoting ProPublica, The western United States is famously in the grips of the worst mega drought in a millennium. The Colorado River, which supplies water to more than 40 million Americans and supports food production for the rest of the country, is in imminent peril. The levels in the nation's largest freshwater reservoir, Lake Mead, have dropped to around 25% of capacity. The Bureau of Reclamation, which governs Lakes Mead and Powell and water distribution for the southern end of the river, has issued an ultimatum. The seven states that draw from the Colorado must find ways to cut their consumption by as much as 40% or the federal government will have to do it for them." End quote. That was back in August. Those seven states failed to make that federal deadline, and last week state leaders and the U.S. Department of Interior met in Santa Fe, New Mexico at the Colorado River Symposium to discuss new actions. Those discussions will decide our future. But one book, published last year, took a look back at the river's history and how we got to this point. Vox recently interviewed John Fleck, former director of the University of New Mexico's water resources program and co-author of the book, Science Be Damned, How Ignoring Inconvenient Science Drained the Colorado River. According to Fleck and his co-author Eric Cunn, our present crisis is largely due to bad math and the willful ignoring of scientific findings a hundred years ago. Fleck told Vox, quote, In the early 20th century, the U.S. Geological Survey sent out this guy named Eugene Clyde LaRue to try and measure the Colorado River. LaRue started to see that, beyond the time horizon that we'd been measuring the river so far, a couple of recent decades, there were some really big droughts. He concluded in a 1916 report that the river is subject to big droughts on timescales of 10 to 20 to 50 to 100 years. It doesn't just stay wet. The negotiators of the Colorado River Compact, the foundational document for figuring out how to divide up the river and decide who gets what, needed this information. They needed science. But they came together to figure this out without LaRue. They sidelined him. They ignored his science that said there'd been big droughts. Instead, the negotiators looked at a much more recent period of time that had been extraordinarily and unusually wet. They said the rivers got plenty of water to build all these farms and to build all these cities. They just ignored the science because it was inconvenient. End quote. The science was inconvenient because the Colorado River Compact was a political deal, divvying up water usage between Arizona, California, Colorado, Nevada, New Mexico, Utah, and Wyoming, as well as agreements with various tribes and part of Mexico. So if there was more water calculated to go around, it was easier to make political deals, promising different states there would be plenty of water for whatever it was they particularly cared about, never mind that that water might not actually exist. The 1922 Compact ended up claiming that the Colorado River was capable of providing roughly 20 million acre-feet per year. An acre-foot is how much water is needed to fill an acre with one foot of water. LaRue, by contrast, had estimated the true annual flow to be about 15 million acre-feet. Now, due both to better surveying technology and the effects of the climate crisis, we now know the number is actually about 12 million acre-feet, or 8 million less than what the compact attests. As Fleck and Kun summed it up in their book, "quote, they had conjured up a larger Colorado River than nature could actually provide. The 21st century's problems on the river are the inevitable result of critical decisions made by water managers and politicians who ignored the science available at the time." End quote. It's a tale as old as time. And while people do now acknowledge the correct numbers Flex says it became especially evident during the droughts of the 1930s and 1950s—the compact itself hasn't been updated and is still the primary agreement upon which management of the Colorado River is based, according to Vox. That said, many communities have been using less water— it's tough for farmers to cut back on water, because the only way to really do that is to farm less, but some have managed it nonetheless, and Fleck notes that big cities are particularly good at cutting back on water use even with rising populations. The upper part of the Colorado River Basin, he says, is entitled to 7.5 million acre-feet a year, but since the late 80s has been pretty stable at just 4 million. Meanwhile, the lower Colorado River Basin's water use peaked in 2002. Unfortunately, all of that is still not enough. The Bureau of Reclamation has asked those seven states in the compact to cut an additional 2 to 4 million acre-feet per year, which Fleck explains is one-sixth to one-third of the average annual flow of the river. He told Vox, quote, There's going to be a really big disruption, and it's going to happen one of two ways. Districts and states could figure out now how to come up with those 2-4 to four million acre feet voluntarily working from the bottom up, or the disruption is going to come within a year, or two or three, when the reservoirs are just freaking empty. Those are the two options. The lovely third option is we have a few years of monstrous snowpack melting snow in the spring feeds the river, and I'm not beyond hoping for that third option. End quote. The Lake Powell and Lake Mead reservoirs are the two largest in the nation. They have the capacity to store five times the river's annual flow. Two decades ago, they were full. Right now, they sit at about a third full. This is mostly due to a combination of not reducing our water use enough and 23 straight years of drought in the West, made worse by the climate crisis. Among the many reasons to be concerned, whether you live in the West or not, is that the farms all that water is going to supplies almost all of the country's winter vegetables. There will be tons of consequences if we can't figure out a new plan based on factual data this time and stick to it. But Fleck reminds us of one population we've particularly failed with this century-old compact, quoting again, "...the most important set of users is tribal communities who were promised water by the nation when we were busy stealing their land. We haven't given it to them yet." Even the language I use is problematic. It's not about giving them water that's ours, but acknowledging that this water was theirs to begin with. There are tribes who don't have their water allocations, or who have water allocations, but not the federal largesse to use it in the same way as all the Anglo communities like my own. It's a significant issue across large parts of the basin end quote. The whole issue is a complex and multifaceted one with many different stakeholders. And of course, the problem can't solely be attributed to politicians ignoring the science 100 years ago. We would have still fallen short by a few million acre feet, even with LaRue's more conservative estimate. But it is nonetheless a frustrating revelation and one which I hope we can overcome as local and federal leaders work together this month and onward on solutions. Well, don't forget, if you are listening to this shortly after it goes live, that tonight is the night. NASA is slamming its DART spacecraft into an asteroid as part of the world's first planetary defense mission against potential asteroids. Coverage begins at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, with impact expected for 7.14 p.m. Eastern Time. You can watch the live stream on NASA TV. Link with more viewing info is in the show notes. Also, this morning, NASA announced that they will be rolling the Artemis 1 rocket back to the Vehicle Assembly Building tonight, based on weather concerns associated with Hurricane Ian. So this means that the next launch attempt will likely not be for quite a few weeks, potentially not even until November. So bummer, though not unexpected news for Artemis 1, but we'll have some excitement in space nonetheless tonight with the DART mission. But that is going to be it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.